Hi folks, welcome to another week at the Tortoise Shack. Uh, just to keep you up to speed, uh, this morning we put out a new Glow West on sex work duality and it's a really fascinating interest. It's out everywhere, no paywall, so so have at it. Catch up on Glow West, Carolyn's doing brilliant work there. We also put out on our Patreon feed a new podcast by the Built Different crew on Toxic Beauty. Uh, as you know, young people scare me, uh, but but Joella, Deborah, and Benita are killing it every week. Uh, also had a conversation just a few minutes ago with uh, Colombian journalist Nicholas Dale Leal again about what's actually happened. It happened. The left did win in Colombia. Gustavo Petro is the new man, is the new president in charge in Colombia for the first time they have a leftist government. So it's going to be a fascinating uh, few years there. And and uh, Nicholas joined us to tell us what the impact of that may be. Uh, also, you've missed out on conversations Rory had with uh, Trisha Keelty from Social Justice from uh, St. Vincent de Paul. Apologies. And uh, myself and Martin sat down with Karen Nugent from Neary to talk about the living wage versus minimum wage. All of them are available now on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee or a cheap pint nowadays. Once a month, 550 keeps the mics on. We'd really appreciate it if you could help us join us and keep uh, these mics going. Listen, I won't, I won't delay any further. This is a conversation we had last week, a brilliant conversation I had last week and not my input, believe me. With Sinead Moles, who you would have heard from before, on is an expert on global food supply chains and uh, the commodification of food. And Mike Anzar, who we hadn't spoken to previously, but he is an expert in finance, debt, and and uh, government debt in a sense. And, and they were in Lebanon and kindly joined me for a conversation. So have a listen. It's eye-opening. That's all I'd say. Thanks for the support. Talk to you soon. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves, and I continue to fly solo. Um, the uh, the the uh, ball and chain, or the the work the work wife is 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 unwell, but fingers crossed we'll hear from him the next couple of days. Uh, and I, I'm trying to be sincere, but I, do, I would say rec- check out his piece that went in the Examiner earlier on the week. I thought it was really really well well put, and uh, I don't give him much credit very often, so do give it a read. I, I thought I thought I thought it was really good. Look, it's been a hell of a week in terms of what we've been covering across the Tortoise Shack. It's been a long time we've been covering some of these issues, but this is a confluence of two issues we've covered previously. One is the situation in Lebanon that we've spoken to Hannah McCarthy about, Seamus Malkazali as well about, and you know, and then the other is obviously food security uh, that we only we covered as recently as Tuesday with, with the CEO of Docus, Jane Ann McKenna. Um, and in all of those, these things, as we keep, as we spoke about previously, are, are connected. The, the struggles, the issues, the topics are all connected. And previously, you might remember, we spoke to international development consultant and research affiliate Sinead Moulds. And Sinead had chair had been part of an author of a huge report on food security and the commodification of food. And Sinead rejoins us as well. So Sinead, first of all, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Delighted to be here, Tony. Thank you. Um, and Sinead is in Lebanon with um, another senior financial advisor, debt financial advisor, and I, I just a man who who has covered looking at. Um, uh, I think one of the papers like you're involved in was called the the uh, autopsy of of a collapse. Uh, was one of the things you're involved in, and um, debt debt and the issue and how that impacts wider economies. Mike Azar, Mike, Mike, it's great to talk to you for the first time. Yeah, nice to meet you, Tony. Um, listen, folks, I want to start with Sinead, if that's OK, because when we last spoke, Sinead, you spoke about the problems around the commodification of food. We, But one of the things we've seen now is we didn't obviously anticipate 
the other challenges that have come in on this and how how that how quickly those food chains that we spoke about previously, how quickly they've the, the stress has come on them. Can you give us sort of an overview of how you feel things have gone from the last time we spoke? Yes. So so between COVID and the Ukraine Russian war, um things have deteriorated rapidly. Uh, and so uh, it's a pretty dismal situation. Um, the scenarios we're looking at at the moment are between seven and a half to 13, over 13 million um, people undernourished, additional people undernourished by next year. And we've moved from 150 million people needing food assistance, so those in an emergency situation in 2019, to 276 million in February, and that's before the Russian war. So we're looking at uh, over 320 million. Um, and that's, again, that's just emergency. That's not the people who are food insecure. So way off target to achieving zero hunger by 2030, certainly. Um, food prices reached their highest ever peak in March of this year. Um, and I mean, with the effects of that, aside from the effects on dietary outcomes, nutrition, uh, hunger, you're looking at poor sanitation as well as as money is being spent differently, um, which in itself brings in a vicious cycle of, of malnutrition when you've got poor hygiene, you've got diarrhea. Um, and then linked to the war, we've got trade disruptions that are making it harder to reach those 320 million people that need food assistance. Um, so today we have a crisis of prices and a crisis of access as a result. But if the war continues, which it looks like it is going to continue, unfortunately, we're looking at a supply issue. And so this is the third crisis of the kind of the last 50 years. Um, and it's 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 really unfortunate to be saying this because the last time you and I spoke, I, I was saying, you know, we were looking at the, at the fifth global summit on, on food systems. So it was fairly hopeful. Mm. And now we're looking at the third. You, kind you, of crisis. You, you were, you were actually thinking that the joined up thinking that was, was beginning to happen. The, the, the idea of how we treat sustainability, how we treat actually the quality of the food as well was more, you know, we were talking, having these conversations and now we're back at 300. No, not back at, we're breaking records on, on all the worst records of three. 120 people in need of emergency support in terms of nutrition. Yeah, and just going in, in the wrong direction on, on all, all the points, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so if this continues, we're looking at a supply issue. And uh, and I mean, the joined up thinking, unfortunately, that there's actually been a kind of a lack of consensus uh, in international organizations and, and governments. Aside from within the EU, there was only... Uh, a couple of countries, I suppose, who, who weren't in agreement, but there's a lack of consensus as well globally, which is making it harder to to, to figure out and implement this kind of joined up thinking. Mm. Um, but yeah, so <clears throat> we're looking at um, an availability issue. If <clears throat> sorry, if the um, if the war continues, if if ports and roads continue to be damaged, we're looking at disease in animals as they're being pushed out of Ukraine. Um, and really importantly, so we know that the price of fertilizers, uh, the price of food, the price of fertilizers are increasing, but also at the moment, so wheat and, and other grains are challenging to access. But 
we're on a really fine line where other exporting countries, so Russia and Ukraine obviously being key in this, other exporting countries, Argentina, for example, uh, one bad harvest, or if they don't, if they can't get access to the inputs they need. You know, let me, we're talking, this is true. They, they, they've been told that they've been denied the ability to even plant the crops, never mind bad harvest in, in many cases. So, um, and I know people talk about the, in the rhetoric of you know the breadbasket of Europe and all of these phrases that are used, but but I mean just in terms of the the idea, like again, make it clear to want to make it clear to listeners, a lot of these grains are are dependent for to come to feed cattle elsewhere in the world to provide food yeah. on the on the on the output. So it's it's part of this joined up thinking and joined up um, food chain, and um, yeah, if, if that teeters, it, it 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 could mean you know catastrophic results for people in 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 places we haven't even discussed yet you know so that's the real that's the real fear here and when you when you put numbers like that on it Sinead it's terrifying to think 320 million um, people in emergency like the last time we spoke I think wasn't it Afghanistan had nearly uh, 40% I think of people at the time were then food insecure and now I think that's raised up by up to nearly 75%. They don't know where the next meal is coming from. Uh, and this situation has only gotten worse. Can I can I ask you, though, is there anything that that if you were to point that, 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 that you know, we, we should be doing, you know, uh, we should be doing uh, calling for at the very least? What, what would you recommend now? I mean, I know it's a very broad question, but it's just it does seem it's an emergency situation. So we need emergency response. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there are there are several things, I think. So I, I, I think the most urgent uh, issue that we need to make sure doesn't happen, I suppose, is so we're looking at the prices of grains, wheat and maize, etc. Um, and access to those and availability of those. But at the moment, rice is still OK. However, if the key producing and exporting countries, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Indonesia, etc., uh, of rice, if if they don't get access to the inputs, we're looking at much a much worse situation. So much higher numbers of food insecure people, because many countries actually depend more on rice and cassava than they do on wheat. So and, and the most vulnerable countries, so in in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. So the first thing is to make sure that we get those inputs uh, to those countries and that they, their their food supply and production can continue. Um. And the EU sanctions, they don't include agricultural sanctions, but it's the financial mechanisms that are at play as well. And I think you guys can both speak to that better than I. Um, we definitely need as well, uh, you know, it's funny. So there's a difference between today's crisis and even the one 10 years ago, not even 10 years ago, in 2007, 2010, where the idea of any kind of self-reliance at a national level was, you know, completely balked at. And today it's a little bit more accepted. So we need to look at local market production for diversification. But at the same time, today in today's crisis, we need to make sure that uh, export restrictions are not put in place because that that does mess up everything along the supply chain. And it's, it's the most vulnerable who get affected Mm. Um, I mean, in, in the medium to longer term, obviously, we need to look for alternative sources of energy. But, you know, we have we have the strategies in place, the ideas in place for more diversified diets, essentially. But structurally, we need to make sure that the farmers are incentivized and supported in that. Whereas at the moment, they're locked into these agricultural production systems that are reliant on chemical fertilizers uh, and they've already invested in the infrastructure. So it's not a very easy transition. Exactly. Right. So, you know, 
And then yeah. in terms of the international financial institutions, um, there's kind of, at the moment, there's not enough flexibility uh, and concessional lending rates, I think. Um, and this is where you guys should, should come oh, in. Oh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have that conversation, Mike, about, about what needs to be done there <laughs> shortly. But I just, on, on, the, on the transition that needs to happen in terms of food and, 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 how, it's, and how it's done, um, I, I remember speaking um, the recent book, uh, Mark Lo- Eric Lonergan wrote, The Economist, with... with um, Kareen uh, Sawyer's about supercharge me and, and it's those incentives that that they speak about the most about making making sure that you give those if it's if it's food transitions if it's energy transitions we have to actually step up and make sure that that, that the incentive is there for the market to move that way and for the um the public to know that they're actually going to be better off you know if I'm going to retrofit this house I need to make sure that I know that it, the incentive doesn't just have to be that I'm doing my bit for the environment it has to actually make it make a difference in my pocket as well and we need yeah. we need those incentives delivered by governments now on when it comes to food well i mean just listening to what you said it i get the sense that the market seems to be understating the risk of uh, of a scenario that you just described because typically wouldn't you know if you potentially are go, you know could have you know there's a real likelihood of shortages of certain goods why is the price of them today not going up to incentivize more production of those goods or fertilizers, or uh, maybe it's a matter of just this risk being underestimated. And 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 like that comes like you you take that scenario and you flip it on its head when you talk about economists with climate change and climate action. They say, well, right now we don't need to because we're not at the graph says we're not really there yet. But but the tipping point when it comes, the costs of then you know the cost sort of say the cost of actually fighting climate action might actually be detrimental to the economy now. But when it's when the t- tipping point comes, it just shoots up and all of a sudden we, we've left it too long, too long. So, you know, and it's a similar kind of scenario, I think, is what Sinead has kind of outlined. And 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 that would worry. But look, I will come to you now, uh, Mike, on that. I mean, first of all, um, obviously, you've written a lot about uh, Lebanon itself and, and the need for uh, the 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 debt financing and debt restructuring and and how the economies need to be better managed. I I, I spoke recently, I don't know if you know the um Dirigi Alameu from the um the Global Alliance for Tax Justice. And he wasn't he was speaking about the inability of African countries to renegotiate debt as well. You know, when you think of how powerful it was for Ireland to be able to go and sell our give, you know, borrow from the IMF and then borrow uh well back from the ECB to pay off that debt at rates basically at zero. Uh, whereas with that, whereas that debt spiral is not open to countries that are already struggling. It's the equivalent of saying, you know, Mike, I've given you a loan of 4%. You can't pay it back, but here's a credit card at 13% to start paying me back with. <laughs> How are things look in your opinion, first of all, maybe within Lebanon. And then if you could just, if we could broaden that out, what that means in, in the global economy, because I know rates unfortunately uh, are going in the wrong direction at the wrong time for when we're facing these various crises. Yeah, I mean, Lebanon's situation is a little bit unique just because um, most of our debt is uh, to internal lenders. So we don't have, we haven't, I mean, we have, you know, we obviously we have some borrowing from international uh, investors and funds, and we've defaulted on that debt, but we haven't even started the negotiation process there to restructure that debt. So we don't know what challenges we're going to face there yet. But that's a small sliver of this country's debt problem, which is mostly debt owed to locals. 
uh, and you know mainly bank depositors, which is in many ways even more challenging because you can always tell a foreign investor, "I'm not going to pay you back." But how do you tell a local depositor, "I'm not going to give you your deposit back"? Uh, you know, they live here, they vote here uh, as a politician. You know, it's a politically very challenging uh, situation to be in, which is why we've been in this debt crisis for three years now and have done absolutely nothing about it. Um, so, you know, we're, we're isolated from the global markets in many ways because we were never really that plugged into it. You know, a lot of countries that have been borrowing a lot over the last five or six years at low rates now are going to be paying the price for it as rates go up, their, their debt service costs go up, and whether they can afford it or not is, is something yet to be seen. We're, we've been pretty isolated from that because we're never plugged into the international market. We are plugged into the international market in terms of imports. We're a very import-dependent country. Um, and so we import a lot of fuel, uh, a lot of food, food products. So, you know, we're coming into this crisis, this, you know, global food and commodity uh, crisis generally, already on the back foot because we've, we're already dealing with a separate crisis that is, has made us much less resilient and much less able to deal with the consequences of higher commodity prices. You know, if you're a country that's running out of dollars and now, uh, you know, diesel prices have doubled and you're reliant on imported diesel for electricity generation, uh, you're reliant on imports of all types of food stuff, you don't produce much domestically. You know, yeah. how do you deal with that situation? Your government can't borrow because it's already defaulted on its debt and it's broke and it needs to do its own restructuring. Uh, your banks are, are bankrupt. So you don't, you don't have the tools that some other countries might have to kind of get through, you know, a period of one or two years. I mean, like with COVID, you know, mm. countries borrowed a lot and just managed their affairs for two years. Now we're coming into a different but, crisis. But, but also in COVID, the, the like EU fiscal rules went away. You know, all of these um, debt to service ratios were said, well, look, we'll, we'll pause all of that. We'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll effectively have a, an EU recovery fund, which was, you know, again, printing presses of money for, for, for next to zero. Where, you, where Lebanon doesn't have access to, to that. Like the IMF a couple of years ago said, we're, we're not even really... De- dealing with, uh, with with what's happening there in, on any scale, so I mean, it, it, it like I know people say they're dependent upon foreign remittances, but that's that's only a, a tiny fraction of what of what's required to 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 run a, a a country. Yeah, I mean, I just give you some quick numbers, please. Um, we get about six to seven billion a year in remittances. Um, we don't export much. Uh, we, you know, because of the fixed exchange rate we had, our export industry has basically been destroyed over the last 20 or 30 years. And with those remittances, we still draw down our foreign currency reserves about four to five billion per year just to cover our basic imports. And this is after a massive currency crisis where our currency lost 95% of its value over the last two and a half years, which, you know, to somebody who doesn't live in a, in a country that has currency crises, what that means is that your income is flat and the price of everything went up 10 times. Mm. So you're consuming less, you're importing less because you can't afford to import anymore. And with all of that, you still need four to six billion more a year to come into this country just to cover your basic import needs. 
you know, I mean, Sinead knows more about this, but, you know, food security, while one aspect of it may be availability and supply, another aspect of it is affordability of the food that, you know, that there may be enough supply of it if you can afford it. Our prime minister in early 2020 published an op-ed in the Washington Post warning about uh, a food crisis in Lebanon and potential famine. Maybe a, a bit exaggerated at the time uh, uh, because of the audience that he was trying to, uh, you know, reach to get support and grants for Lebanon. But, you know, we've had a food crisis since before COVID because mm. people just aren't, because we don't produce it much domestically. And the currency has lost so much, so much of its value that people just can't afford to buy the food that is available here. And even the food that was been was been purchased, there was issues around, obviously, um, when you have issues of electricity shortages, it's, you can't preserve the food because you can't keep it cold, you can't keep it fresh, you can't do, you know, there was, oh, yeah. there was a lot, while like, you get food poisoning once a week. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, sorry, Sinead, yeah, but I mean... No, I, no, no, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, we're aware of those stories, though, of of doctors and nurses dealing with the, the during COVID saying actually the main problem is food poisoning. Uh, it's been, you know, obviously the pandemic is, is awful, but the fact is people are presenting with, um, you know, with the, the remnants of eating meat that had gone off, eating whatever produce that had gone off, because that is, is where, where it is. And I mean, you know, that, that again, to bring it back to the Irish audience thing, I think Daniel Murray in the Business Post published a thing yesterday showing that. Uh, obviously, Ireland has started to burn coal at Money Point again as a backup, but that's actually about 250 me- million megawatts below what we need. So we're now we're now turning on generators, which are essentially like turning on airplane engines to to back up the backup, and that's and that's in what's supposed to be the developed world. You know, one of the most richest countries in in, in the world. We, we are we are very energy insecure as well. Mike, if, can I ask though, just if we can broaden it out to the to the global context, though, because we've seen and here's, uh, you know, Italy currently is really facing another debt crisis where its its interest rates are at a risk now. The the, the bond rates for Italy, I, I mentioned Ireland's have trebled from 0.6% to 2.2, uh, you know, but Italy's have gone from 0.6% to nearly 6.5%, 7%. And, and that, that creates a risk then because of the size of the debt within the EU. Um, and I've heard, you know, again, interest rates are going to start going up domestically. The, the ECB is putting up rates from July. We know that it's, it's already happening in the UK, um, Central Bank and the Fed in the US. In that environment, when we need all of this money to actually support all these emergencies, what what steps do you feel are going to happen or or or, or, or should happen? I mean, you know, there were only a few ways that this could play out, you know, between QE and, uh, and additional government borrowing uh, during COVID and, and before, you know, you just have a massive debt burden globally. And uh, you either inflate that away by just letting prices go up and there be inflation uh, or, uh, you know, you increase taxes so you can pay that debt back or you default and don't pay it. You know, I mean, not not really many ways this this can this could play out, and it's really uh, kind of because of the just unusual and exceptional involvement of central banks and um, and managing these crises. I think a lot of people. I think we just really don't know how this is going to play out. I mean, in many ways, Lebanon's kind of on the cutting edge because we had a central bank that was before all the Western central banks got in on this game. 
that was very involved in managing, um, you know, uh, uh, in borrowing and doing something similar to QE if you want. Mm-hmm. But obviously, we can't really do QE because we're not we're not a hard currency. And then the central bank uh, went bankrupt, went insolvent. Uh, and so we're actually, for the last three years, have been facing the direct consequences of what happens when a central bank balance sheet grows too much, the central bank borrows too much, prints too much, um, and then the economy doesn't grow quickly enough to offset that, that balance sheet growth. There's no way to unwind it. And so what's happening here, the consequence is that the value of money which is deposits and the currency has basically evaporated. And that's how we've, we're, we're rebalancing the system here. Yeah, Probably so not something not so drastic is going to happen in the West, but you know, yeah, yeah. But, but, but we're already seeing the, 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 the signs of that. We're already seeing the signs of like, you know, inflation at, at 35 year highs in, in, in most of the EU. Now it's, it's racing ahead. The cost of obviously, you know, people. There's a narrative that it kind of started uh, with the with the invasion of Ukraine. It didn't. It was already it was already embedded six months earlier. It was just taking the time. We've seen for the first time property markets collapsing, and like that's the first time since the global financial crisis uh, in the U.S. They've let they've let go more mortgage advisors and banks than than they have. They had the lowest the biggest plunge in April. Biggest dip in new mortgage sales since the, since their records began in percentage terms, and now we see in Ireland that the for, like for better or worse, the market inflation in house prices was went down for the first time in in since again the, since the crisis. So all of the signs are there for a a um, a dip and a and a severe dip. But the last time you know, they sat on their hands. And as you said, about 18 months into it, the US kicked off first with QE. And then, you know, it was Trichet said, I'll do what we'll do, whatever is possible. And then it was effectively QE EU style. Um, but there's a suggestion now, and I'd put it to you, and I don't know what, what's your thoughts on it, of um, say dual interest rates, uh, you know, for, 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 for sovereign debt and then, and then, and then pool debt. Have you, have you seen any of this or, or what do you, or, and, and if you have, what did you make of it? What's so? What do you mean, pooled debt? So, so, so for so, so for example, example, if the EU's if the EU's debt if the EU is borrowing at at, at a at a rate of two percent, whereas whereas the sovereign debt is going to be at a separate rate, so it's it's kind of again, it, it seems like another trick to me to to uh, to say this is how we'll offset maybe the risk of Italy or if Ireland, co- yeah. you know, starts so to fight. The stronger credits subsidize the weaker ones. Yes. The EU. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I don't follow the, you know, the EU that that closely, but I mean, you know, how are the Germans, you know, Germans feel about that? And, uh, <laughs> well, we already know they didn't like the idea of, uh, <laughs> you know, but like I just, yeah, no, I, I just, I have seen it floated. And I do think the one thing that we have seen is central banks, uh, you know, obviously they, they, they were slow to react to the last crisis, then they were quicker to react when, well, say the global financial crisis, we, we, we consider them slow to react, then they were quick enough to react to the pandemic. And now this is a third one, a third hundred year event in the space of a decade, you know, and now we're facing yeah. that. Um, can I, I don't, look, can I ask though, just in terms of, so I, I loan restructures and debt, debt renegotiation, this is going to come into it in in the confluence of as well as um, and we may we may mention taxes in in a while, but but in terms of loan loan restructures, you said Lebanon defaulted on its debt. What kind of um, what kind of rates were, were were applicable to those debts? If you if if you have anything, if you, any statistics that you can remember. 
you know, they weren't high enough to actually reflect the credit risk of Lebanon because we're such an isolated country. Um, there was a lot of, uh, and kind of the, the biggest buyer of Lebanese government debt was Lebanese banks. Mm. So you could very easily manage the interest rate that you pay, uh, you know, between the central bank uh, and the banks. So it not, not really a good indicator. I mean, I think our Eurobonds coupon was like 6 to 8%, which for Lebanon's credit is actually very, you know, is pretty good. But that's only because the buyer of that debt were local institutions. So it's, it wasn't a real interest rate. The rate should have been much higher mm. given, you know, how bad of a credit Lebanon is. Yeah. Um, uh, well, uh, but and yet now if we go, so so those rates, like I, I want to bring it to, some of the things that have then, you know, we were talking about this crisis of food insecurity. We, I was at the the meeting on the on the Horn of Africa crisis, and we also know that those countries that are looking to renegotiate debt are being are being pushed to the pin of their collar because they're they're actually being told, you know, okay, you you can't default. We can renegotiate, but the terms will will kick the can out a bit longer. But the but the but the rates are going up higher. I it I I refer to it as um as as uh debt colonialism and uh and Dirige called it uh, uh, imperialism as well. I like uh, is that the sort of what what's your take on those on those positions? Because we you know I mean I mean it's a big problem you know because sovereign debt unlike other types of debt there's no court process. Uh, to renegotiate it and restructure it. It's just a negotiation between the two parties and they just have to reach a deal. But there's been a lot of talk uh, for a while now about institutionalizing the sovereign debt restructuring process to make it a lot easier, to make it something closer to what a corporate bankruptcy and restructuring would look like so that it's just you can do it quickly. Um, You don't get stuck in these multi-year defaults that never get resolved. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, probably there'll, you know, there'll be more, there's more incentive now to kind of get that, get that done, but you just need a process and a structure that creditors and borrowers can both get behind. And so far we, there's not really been something like that developed, but there's a lot of smart people, you know, working yeah. on that. I, I've heard of talks of maybe bringing something <clears throat> like that to the UN, in fact, which, which you know, or, or some sort of UN governing body, which would at least give 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 that parity of esteem whereby you might not have, you know, because in, in global terms, you'll have developing countries cannot get the same influence at the table when it's a, when it's negotiated in, in, in the current framework, you know, they don't have equal, equal say, whereas maybe in terms of the UN, there, there could be possibilities to do that. And um, Sinead, if I could come back to you, though, listening to what Mike has said in terms of how difficult the financial environment is, there does seem to, we do need like to act now. I believe the figure was put to, for the emergency payments, the figure was put at 4.4 billion uh, US dollars to, to deal with the Im- immediate crisis of food poverty. In terms in terms of resourcing that and and that, have you seen? Do you think that that um that that people are actually going to act quickly enough on this? I mean, you've dealt with many of these NGOs yourself. You've seen how the things work. Financing for them is part of what they do. They have to go and seek the financing aspect, and it's a very like it sounds distasteful, but um, but here we are. This is the world we live in. Yeah, so the FAO, the UN Food and Agricultural Organization, has launched a food import facility uh, mechanism. Um, So that's 
relatively reactive. Mm-hmm. And that's to support the the countries that are reliant on imports. Um, they're also doing a few other things that I, I you know, are maybe a little less uh, going to be less impactful. Much more needs to be done. We need more money. But the food import facility, you know, it, I, I think it's 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 a good start. Um, Mike and I were chatting about this last week. Actually, Lebanon was only just added to the the list of countries eligible for that. Um, so. It was interesting because previously Lebanon was classified as a what was it upper middle upper yeah. middle income country, and it's mm. been downgraded, uh, which is a, an awful term to use, but mm. to to lower income now, I think. But I mean, listening to what you're both saying, um, I, I just want to come back to the point, like about speculation and the, the the very opaque and essentially dysfunctional grain markets we're dealing with, because finances. The, the whole financial landscape is so central to the conversations and yet it's it's one of the few things even in the narrative that has not changed since the 2007-8-2009-10 food price hikes mm. uh, and it, I find it quite frustrating you know because it's speculation is driving those prices higher and since 2020 we've seen a sharp increase in the number of speculators on the food markets um, so there's there's the fact that it's the markets are not working, which I know Tony will be surprised to hear. <laughs> They're not working to do what they should be doing. Um, <laughs> I, I think the markets are people who who use the markets like that. They're working how they want them to work, not necessarily to deliver the outcomes that we. Okay. That we, yeah. In, yeah. Fine. Right. But if, yeah. if if we believe the narrative and if we believe the very basic common sense that a food system should be supplying food mm. that is helping to fuel and prevent illness for human beings and not degrading our environment, uh, then the food system is not functioning and, and certainly the grain markets are not functioning. And so we have, you know, you, you spoke about storage earlier and yeah, transport, logistics, storage, these, these are all vital components of a sustainable food system. We're talking about a perfect storm at the global level, but Jesus, does does Lebanon really reflect that perfect storm? So we were walking by the port yesterday and you've got the the grain storage facility, which was never uh, rehabilitated. It's it's never recovered. It's just, it's gone. So, I mean, in, in Lebanon, you literally have, what are you missing in terms of the storm is right here, right now. Uh, and also, unfortunately, I think it's 80 or 90% reliant on Ukraine for, for wheat, which is mm. a staple here. Um, so, so yeah, here we're seeing, uh, and, and we're going to see an increased reliance on ultra-processed foods. That's that's a solution, you know, um, yeah. a reduction in, in other nutritious foods, uh, meat, fish, etc. Um, but I realize I've digressed from your initial no, point. no. I think it's actually really, <laughs> I think it's a really um, important point to make because when you're when you're when you're at the where I'm out on the edge and you're at the center, you're at the fulcrum now, and you're looking at it. So you, if you're watching that and you're seeing where where the pivot points are, and unfortunately, it's swinging in the wrong direction. Um, like I mean, we 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 know in Ireland, for example, that LNG was not supposed to be part of this next government, but we know now they're looking at LNG for food, you know, for for energy security, but. When we come, when we talk about food supply, uh, I mean, like again to come back to food, like it's been what was it 20, 2000 and 
2011, where Simon Coveney was Minister for Agriculture and, and boasted that Ireland produced enough food to feed 40 million people. And that became the talking point. And of course, it was just a talking point. It was only, uh, it, you know, it was it was some metric that they used in terms of a, a calorific income somewhere in the world. But it meant nothing to to our own food security on this island. But when you when we when we come back to it again, um, you know, underlying this is obviously that the we're spent the US alone is spending the trillion dollars on uh military for the first time they've broken through the trillion dollar thing in in a year Ireland is now talking about spending 2% of our budget to meet the the NATO cables which is 8 billion a year right and we, and then we just said a few minutes ago that that the the amount that is taught to at least deal with the emergency side of this crisis is is 4.4 billion Mike, is, surely the money is is there. We just we, we just need to um, tell tell people in in, in 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 how it works that literally that is an investment in lives, and the other one is an investment in taking away lives. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a debate that has gone for you know since the beginning of uh, of you know governments. Humans started organizing. Uh, in, in form of governments, you know, uh, bread versus, uh, what is it, guns versus butter or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the U.S. has always spent a lot on defense, you know, but this is just, uh, and politically getting the U.S. to spend less on defense has always been something extremely difficult to do. Um, and actually, when it spends just a little bit more from one year to the next, that also sometimes is a, is a controversy because people expected it to spend even more. You know, I think there just needs to be a whole rethinking, especially now, and it's going to be forced on people because now we're in a situation where, like you were saying earlier, mortgage rates are probably the highest they've been in my adult life that I remember. I mean, six plus percent, I'm used to them being, you know, three, you know, three um, percent. Um, you know, we're prioritizing, uh, you know, at least the Federal Reserve is trying to keep inflation down and that's going to come at the consequence of a recession, less growth, more poverty. Um, and, and that's a decision that is that was made, right? It's not like an accident. The decision was we need to slow down the economy in order to get out control of prices. Um, and I think kind of as you have this turbulence and uncertainty and things that affect people's daily lives in these, this drastic way, that naturally leads to people kind of rethinking all of these types of issues, you know, and it could breed extremism, it could breed, or you could go in another direction, but it's kind of a time where societies and countries go in one direction. It, it, it is, but at the same time, like, that's a, that's a logical, rational, coherent way of thinking. But we've known, we've known forever that food price hikes Food insecurity leads to civil unrest. Mm. And yet military spending remains a focus. And it's completely incoherent in that you need military often because of the civil unrest that's caused by food prices. So what you're saying is really logical, but it doesn't seem to actually land ever. On the contrary, like Ireland now thinking about military, you know, it's... Well, I mean, I wasn't even saying that it will result in people wanting to reduce military spending. Oh. It could have the opposite effect. I mean, you know... Uh, like, uh, you know, we're talking about Lebanon, so we could look here. I mean, this is a country that's going through a lot of economic and financial and food uh, insecurity. And the level of extremism, uh, political fragmentation 
is on the rise. Yeah. The use of military to, you know, quell more frequent protests, mm. people protesting because of food insecurity, uh, get, you know, tear gas shot at them. And the government relies more on the security services to keep control. Not just that, but, you know, there's a whole international effort from the West to fund the Lebanese military. Uh, you know, all the tear gas that gets shot at protesters here, that comes from France. We don't manufacture that here. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, in, in this case, it's led to more of a focus on the military. Uh, I mean, for different reasons than maybe in Europe. Um, and and more, you know, more extremism on the right, on the left. It, 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 the polarization deepens. I, I, I do want to think, though, though uh, Sinead, that there is actually arguments to be made for for a more hopeful scenario whereby we say you know this is the third crisis to kind of um to, to hit us in in just over a decade surely we 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 need to understand that the polarization has only made those things worse and um there can be more global responses to global crises uh there has to be you know joined up thinking there has to be uh tools for access to markets access to food food markets access to finance all of those things <laughs> there are opportunities in the crises, but I I agree with you that it, it's very you know we we tend to see things you know uh, the polarization actually deepening. But there are there are there are maybe people out there making the arguments that 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 we need uh, we need a more rounded thing. And I think one thing that showed that actually when you mentioned the EU sanctions on Ukraine and and the rest, I think you know was it basically only Hungary held out on 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 some of them and. You know they've 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 tipped in a very in a very difficult different way towards authoritarianism and, and totalitarianism themselves. But but Poland, which was and has had issues, particularly around repealing uh, reproductive health care for 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 pregnant people, and that that actually they stood up as well and 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 have agreed to many of these transitions, speeding them up that we need. So so maybe there is. Maybe there is a, an element of hope, or am I just being uh, naive? No, no, I, no. I, I agree with you. And again, I like. I, I think I tend towards uh, well, not necessarily optimism. I think because I'm lucky enough to work in this field, I tend to see some of the frontier thinking on it. So I, you know, I can look around at the crisis and and see where people are making progress. There, there has been an, an ideological shift as well, and the paradigm shift. So the the food system joined up thinking. It, it's it's not. Uh, it's not, it's not all hot air and there are definitely opportunities in that. So the fact that today we're looking at the opportunity in crisis, the fact that today, again, you know, it's not we're not as entrenched in, in a neoliberal way of thinking where the market is the solution and privatization is a solution. And it's it's no longer, thankfully, about purely uh, the, the quantities of food. Um, so the, I think one really clear, obvious opportunity in this crisis is we need to diversify our agricultural production. Mm-hmm. And so and that's an urgency. That's And it's an urgency that everybody is going to feel, whether it's in Ireland or in, in Lebanon, where they're already feeling it. Uh, and because of the context in which this crisis or these crises are happening, uh, the context of the farm to fork strategy, the EU Green Deal, um, and other shifts as well. I mean, also on a slightly more sinister level, um, in in some some thinking at least, the geopolitical differences, the the seeming at least <clears throat> um, growing alliance between Russia and China. There's an urgency here, which means that we have to look for alternatives. So we see that, for example, with renewables, um, but also in agricultural production. So. 
what I'd love to see and I think could be feasible is without without you know transforming the entire system that we maintain the value of the global system the global food systems that we have the global supply chains but we become a little bit more moderate perhaps and and, and bolster local food markets shorter supply chains uh, which doesn't mean that we need to stop importing food it doesn't mean we need to cut off smallholder farmers who have you know built their whole agricultural model around um around the system um, but I do. I think that's that. There's a there's a there's definitely an opportunity there. It's just it's it's just a lot more dismal than when we were last talking. In that, yeah. really, it's today. No matter what we do, there are going to be so many people going hungry, and that's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. And and that's you know, and and the fact that these again the logistics and trade disruptions they're making it harder to reach these people. Um, never mind the quality of the food they're getting. You know, so it's. But there are, you know, yeah, there, there's all, there are always reasons to be optimistic. Last thing to you, Mike. Um, I, I also like to think that people in finance and in, in economics have learned something from the last decade. Uh, that there maybe, you know, because we've that there's that we haven't been sitting like ostriches just pretending that everything the, the market will fix it and that there can be things that don't. don't. And to, to your point about how that can happen. Um, you know, it's a, okay. We've supply side shocks. We've the rise of populism and national nationalism. But but what they need, if finance steps in, you can actually help uh, calm those voices because you can give people opportunities. If I gave you, if I gave you a magic wand for uh, even even in the Lebanese Lebanese context, what would you what would you like to do? In the Lebanese context, um, that's an easier question to answer because it's something I've been thinking about for three years. Um, you know, I think in the Lebanese context, it just it has become, it's such a great example of how important finance is to economic stability and just the daily living standards of people. If you have um, a society today can't function without a banking system. If your bank system collapses, that has effects on uh, economic growth, the ability of businesses to operate, people to earn an income, the ability to import things, uh, the purchasing power of the currency. Uh, you know, so you have this one thing that happened, which is a financial crisis in your banking system that went unresolved. And the fallout of it has been something that has affected the livelihood of everybody uh, in this country, uh, rich and poor, obviously lower income people way more because they have less flexibility. So, you know, I think um, the ability to absorb shocks is very important. And I think, uh, I mean, this is something that is applicable globally too. And it's just, it's why countries are starting to look more at, you know, local supply chains because yes, efficiency is great. Uh, the cheapest possible supply chain is great until China shuts down because of COVID, then it's not so great anymore. Um, and this kind of, you know, building in resiliency into all of your processes in your banking system and uh, your public finances uh, and your supply chains, you know, we can't just keep chasing the cheapest, most efficient process in every single thing we do while ignoring the risk of that this process it could be very brittle mm. and the consequences of, uh, of the process falling apart can just be catastrophic for people. And that's, I mean, that's, Lebanon is, is a good example of that. 
Um, look, listen, folks, we'll leave it there. We're back this mm-hmm. afternoon with Kira Nugent, the economist at Neary, so it never stops. Uh, and then I think we have a another conversation on, unfortunately, the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. But I'm thrilled to have finally, um, finally caught up again with Sinead Mulls in, in Lebanon and to have met Mike Azar. Mike, thanks for your time. Sinead, it's great to see you again. Uh, I'll let you enjoy the, the rest of your day, folks. You you look like you've got a lot more sunshine there than, than, than I have currently. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Folks. Thanks, Johnny. Yeah, thanks. Good talking to you. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.